that's all been a blessing, but it's been a busy day. I'm sure it's been for you, but I'm really happy that I end my day here with you like this, right? So, um, as always, we begin by giving every effort to forget about what we left behind, um, all of the uh, work of our day, the stresses of our day, the joys of our day, whatever it is, that we can leave it behind and we can also forget about what we have when we're finished here, because the day is not over when we finish. And just uh, be present to each other, uh, be present to the course material, um, and really um, enter into it um, with, our, with our mind, with our hearts, etc. So we're going to be like um, our Jewish brothers and sisters, and in our prayer tonight, we're going to anticipate tomorrow, since it's after sundown. And as you all know, I'm sure you're all aware, tomorrow is the feast of St. Padre Pio, a favorite of so many people, right? So I couldn't resist, because on our calendar today, it's just a Wednesday in ordinary time, which is wonderful, but I thought, let's anticipate with our prayer. So as we gather together in our sacred spaces, whether it's here at the seminary or in our house churches, our domestic churches, uh, via Zoom, let us pray. Almighty, ever-living God, who by a single grace gave the priest, St. Pius, a share in the cross of your son, and by means of his ministry, renew the wonders of your mercy. Grant that through his intercession, we may be united constantly to the sufferings of Christ, and so brought happily to the glory of the resurrection. Through, Christ, through our Lord Jesus Christ, your son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God, forever and ever. Amen. Beautiful Saint uh, Padre Pio that we celebrate tomorrow. And uh, tomorrow is also the anniversary of my mother's, um, my mother's death. Oh. Now, uh, that was many years ago, and um, Padre Pio hadn't been declared a saint, but once he was, I was delighted that it was common day. So it's uh, also very special to me as well. All right, so uh, I was very happy last week with the class engagement. Um, as a teacher, uh, when you ask questions, it really shows me you're thinking about the material, you're reading, if you're Rob Lyons, you're doing heavy research, <laughs> which is so great. Um, read, 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 um, you know, uh, even beyond this class, uh, it's, it's, it's just, um, the, as graduate students, that's what we expect. And it's not, being a graduate student uh, in theology, whether you're a deacon candidate, a seminarian, uh, laymen and women, um, whatever it is, um, being a graduate student in theology, you're here because you're called here in whatever capacity. Because studying theology, in my 
view is unique to, with all due respect to other fields, but it's unique in that we can integrate. I shut it all down. Okay. We're going to worry about it next week. Okay. No worries. I'm good. Uh, I saw. Okay. We'll figure it out. Okay. Thanks, Sophia. Thank you. Um, it's unique in the uh, in the sense that this is material that we can integrate into our life, into our way of life. And remember, no matter what our vocation is, the intellectual formation, intellectual studies nourishes our lives, spiritually, pastorally, humanly. Never forget that. Um, I always refer, from my own experience of studying in seminary over 30 years ago, getting my MA, sitting as you are, but I always refer to it as transformative education because it changes our world view in, in a particular way. Uh, a recent graduate of our program here, a laywoman, she recently said to me, being, going through this program at St. Joseph changed my life. That's profound. That's profound. I was speaking to a student whose wife, through his tenure here, he's at the end of his degree, I met with him this afternoon. His wife has been suffering from cancer. She went from zero stage to stage one, now stage four. But he continued to study. And I was surprised. I thought he might withdraw. But you know what he said to me? He said, being here actually has helped me to help her to deal with it in my life. It's a stress on her family, etc. So, So I think I made my point, you know, uh, of what, what I uh, really hope that as graduate students of theology that you take seriously. So, so as I started um, with all of that saying, your engagement last week was really terrific. The questions that were asked, etc. Even after class and through email, and I said, please feel free. I got some questions. I sent uh, some of them to you. Uh, because I'm going to start tonight with addressing the questions. Um, one thing, uh, and those of you who know me, you know that I am an educator. I'm a theological educator. My doctoral work was in education and theology, blending them. So, and I was a teacher long before that. But teachers love questions, you know. So I, I, I would feel that if I don't answer your questions, or I can, or I can't direct you to a resource to answer your question. I feel badly. So I want to try my best on my end, not only to just give you information, but to try to answer your questions. And I, I'm the first to say I don't know the answer, but I know where to find it. All right. So um, I just want to address the first thing I wanted to go back to was uh, Rob, Rob's comment about him being a deacon for 20 years and right there at the altar, particularly during the epiclesis, calling down of the Holy Spirit, that being so close to that act.
you that it struck me and I pondered it all the way on my hour's ride home <laughs> last week. I did. I mean it. And so I was really thinking about it. And this is the thought that I had. A couple of thoughts. And I'll just share them with you. The first thing I thought of that we have to, when we study liturgy, um, all sacraments, remember, we ha uh, particularly, uh, I'm going to reference to the Eucharist. The sanctuary is not the only place that something is happening. You have to remember that. Something has happened. Remember the gathering of the assembly, right? We have to remember that, that something is happening within the assembly. So that was the first thought I had. And then I was thinking of when I went to Madison Square Garden to see the Pope when he was here in New York. And I, we were all so far away from the action at the altar. Was I able? I'm thinking of me personally now. You can relate it in your own way. I truly felt that I experienced the Holy Spirit's presence over those gifts. And I was a mile away, right? All right, so that that's some thoughts that I had. And I think in general, I would suggest that we, no matter how far away we are seated from the action that we need to trust that the Holy Spirit, and I'm sure we do, but that the Holy Spirit is at work. Right? Right? right. Something is happening. I would have to agree, though. You know, when I'm up on the altar, you get a, a very intense feeling when you're up there. It's, uh, it's like being closer to a fire or something like that. So, I, you know, I've always said that to people in my parish. You should volunteer to be a lector. You should volunteer to be a Eucharist minister. you got to get up on the altar to, to feel it. So. Yeah, and I've been up on the altar plenty of times um, in various ministerial roles. But there's a fear. We want to be clear that participation in the liturgy, particularly the Eucharist, does not only mean that you're a deacon, a lector, an extraordinary minister of Holy Communion, that the participation is happening no matter where you are. But I get that, that, in, you know, being right there and, okay, Barbara, add to it, go ahead. Well, I can appreciate that feeling that you're having being that close. You also have to recognize that there are people who are that close, whether clergy or otherwise, who don't have that per se feeling. That's a good point. So, yeah. you know, that does not take away from someone feeling right privileged or closer and I can appreciate that absolutely but I also think that to almost make it sound like there's this you know kind of magic aura that if that was the case everyone would feel it and certainly we I think we all know we have times when right. that that's a that's a good point so I think you know it might be something that people have to um, become aware of um, 
but you're concentrating on it and you're prayerful at that moment so you are connected um but certainly physically connected right yeah and but i think that that connectedness can be felt from other locations i i, I tend to agree like in, for example when we have weekday mass here i sit in the very back by the the door to the chapel and it's intense for me every action that's going on i experience so so we my point to bringing this back up is because i was thinking about it and we uh, we just have to be careful you know there's not levels it's we are no matter where we're sitting we're participating in the paschal mystery that i think that's the point that's important and we're experiencing it present for us here and now and i think just bringing that to the attention of people when we have the opportunity teaching preaching whatever it is creating an awareness for people that this is what they're participating in right even if they're not a lector an extraordinary minister of holy communion etc that they still are participating in a very real and deep way so that's and maybe that's a grace given to someone that they have that experience well i think some of the saints the darkness of the soul saint Teresa of calcutta saint john of the cross i think they all went through periods where that feeling i mean i have been there and um, certainly have an opportunity to use those saints um, in prayer for people who say, I feel nothing. I'm there, but I feel nothing. So I, I, I guess the deacon is very fortunate to, to have that blessing bestowed on him in that moment. Yeah, that's a great point, because we're not always going to have that intensity. Uh, Mother, and like if you read uh, Mother Teresa, her last 40 years on earth, except for the last few months, she had very dry prayer. Yeah. And she's she's a saint now. So, exactly. So it happens to all of us. It, it happens. It happens. But I, I think you get somebody else had a hand up though. Yeah. Well, the other thing, like Deacon Frank was pointing out, how powerful it is that anywhere in the world, someone's consecrating the Eucharist, and it's and that goes worldwide. So it's where we get this pulsating effect throughout the world. Kind of amazing to think about it. It is very amazing. Uh, Dr. Eschenauer, can I? Uh, yeah, Bill and then Robert. I just want to give a different, an added perspective. Please. Um, my role in, in Brooklyn uh, on our television network, we, uh, we broadcast mass several times per day. And so we struggle with this question. Mm -hmm. um, and we, and we, we pay close attention to the response that we get from our audience. And in fact, one of the things we're doing now is we're taking a close look at the entire environment that's created around this uh, because it is people are watching it on television. Um, and one of the things that we pay particular attention to is that we are doing the masses live so that they are actually participating. Um, you know, so like for instance, like as we're all experiencing now that are on Zoom, you know, you are live in this class. Uh, so we are experiencing this class together. If this was a recording of Zoom and uh, we were watching it at a different time, um, you know, the experience may not be the same or feel the same. 
Um, and so, uh, and we go to great effort to, to make sure that our masses are live. Some, some folks don't think that's important. They think it could be just um, a recorded mass. And uh, there's a lot of debate around this. Um, yes. So, uh, but I do know just recently we've had feedback just in the last couple of days from some folks who, and the objection that they have is that we have commercials that oh. come after our after our masses. So in the morning we broadcast an English mass at eight, a Creole mass at eight thirty, and a Spanish mass at nine. During the pandemic. We were actually doing nine masses a day in nine different languages live every day wow. um, at the height of the pandemic. And so, but in between where there were some promos running for our new show or some other things, we've been getting complaints um, that it's breaking up. So, breaking up their so, prayer. Exactly. So people are feeling it, even though they're, the other, the other thing also is the, uh, the, the uh, prayer by St. Alphonsus. You know that is shown at the end. That's another thing that's that's talked about and questioned um, as a sort of replacement, uh, if you will. And I know there's debate about that prayer as well. You know that says, although I can't receive you sacramentally now, I. Oh I, right, the spiritual communion. Yes, the spiritual communion, Saint Alphonsus. So, anyway, I just offer that as. No, that that's a good point, and. Um, certainly during the pandemic, for people who are uh, ill and can't go to Mass, to be able to broadcast it is a wonderful thing. But we have to realize we're still watching Mass. And it is different because post-pandemic, some people are like, well, I'll continue to watch. Now, if, you, if you're able, come back. To mass and a lot of church bulletins pastors are writing this that watching mass it's a wonderful thing that we have could offer it however you know it's the whole idea and you're going to get this the spirit of the liturgy is that we gather together but bravo that we can have um live stream masses broadcasted masses for people who cannot leave robert then rob and Doug, and then we'll move on to the next question. Okay. I'm just going uh, to, I think the uh, key to the participation of the liturgy is really catechesis. You know, unless we are truly formed, we really don't know what's going on. We could be in the sanctuary, we could be in the assembly. Unless we're properly formed, we really cannot uh, get out of or build our own spiritual lives or be inspired by what's being said people say I'm bored. Unfortunately, the church dropped the ball on its foundation. It's yeah, I, now I'm going to address that in a minute, actually. It's, it's a, it's it is an issue. I just want to interrupt for a minute. Uh, when students are giving comments here in the classroom, can you people on Zoom hear them? Yeah, good. Okay. Just want to be sure. Okay. That's awesome. Rob. All right. You mentioned last week that the celebration really begins with the entrance in during mass, okay? And if I go with on the, the gathering, the gathering, right. But if I go on the premise of how few people are singing, I think to me that's indicative of what you're saying right here about people observing, they're not participating. 
There's no sense. I don't think people know they're supposed to participate. Well, that goes with what Robert's saying. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, because Robert was talking about the lack of catechesis. And I'm going to address that because a question came via email to me regarding that. I'm going to address that. Yeah, that people are not aware coming in, you know, the whole thing of late and not before. So it is. It's a lack of understanding of what the gathering means, what preparation means, you know. Yeah. Well, I think it's indicative of the fact that only 39 percent of Catholics go to mass anymore because if they did participate in the mass, they would want to be there. Exactly. Yeah. Not only that, human research did a survey two years ago that two thirds of Catholics who go to mass on Sunday do not believe in the real presence. That's correct. That's a major. That's catechetical as well. Doug and then Lucas. Doug, go ahead. Look at what you created. All this. This is awesome. I love it. No, this is this is good. This is learning. So it's a liturgy class. We're focused on the mass, right? Well, yeah, go ahead. So I have a totally different perspective. Good. Consolation. I get it at mass. I get it on the altar. I get it driving in my car, listening to a hymn. I get that same feeling. I agree. I don't attach it to the liturgy per se. It's God's gift. And I just look at it as him touching me at that moment. And it's treasure. It's precious because it doesn't last. It's all grace. And you're exactly right. But it's not limited to the environment of the altar or the mass or to me. Right. No. I mean, God's presence is everywhere. God's graces are everywhere. Right. Well, St. Ignatius said God is present in all things. We do it in a particular way through in and through liturgy. And so that's why we're focusing. But you're 100 percent right. You know, I get it on my drive home when I'm listening to beautiful uh, chanting of sisters that live in um, the Midwest. So you're absolutely right. Lucas, and then I'm moving on to the next question. He, he, stole, he stole my life. He stole your mind. It's all about God's grace. I shall not steal. Listen, it's all grace. And, you know, we need to pray. Tomorrow, the feast of St. Padre Pio, pray for a grace. Pray for a special grace. And you'll get it, no matter what it is. You know, um, it's an opportunity. I mean, we can do that all the time, but particularly through the intercession of Padre Pio. But it's all grace. And we also have to remember for the moments that we had the feeling, the intense experience, that grace doesn't go away. It's going to remain with us. Right? And for the times that we don't perhaps experience it, as Amory brought up, the dark night, we've all had experienced the dark night, I'm sure. We, we want to pray for the grace to, to come out of that dark night. And there are saints who never did. But they knew deep down, even though they didn't feel it, experience it, Therese of Lesseur is also one of them. Once she entered the convent, she had this dark night. But she knew God was with her. She knew it, and we know that from her beautiful writings. She trusted that even though she didn't have this intense feeling, God was with her. That's that's a gift. That's a grace. And we all need to pray for that because we all have, you know, so that's, 
that's so great. So thank you for your comment because it benefited everybody. So um, these are a couple of other things worth um, our thoughts. And then I promise we'll get back to the second century and we'll finish the third, maybe. Um, we'll see. Okay, um, let's see. Um, I'm just gonna read the question as the student uh, proposed it. According to uh, Joseph Youngman, Youngman, as my husband says, emphasis on integrating worship and catechesis, um, but he advocate that there should be some level of catechesis in a homily. That's the first part of the question. And then I'm just gonna read the whole thing and then I'll break it up. Homilies today seem to focus solely on the readings, but does not offer any real substance on instructing the faithful in, their fa in the faith. Shouldn't catechesis be intertwined with the gospel reading with the opportunity to speak about Holy Eucharist, penance, anointing of the sick, etc. This brings, this is a loaded question and it's an important question. And some of you who were in the pastoral ministry course, you heard some of this. But this has to do with what the early pioneers of the liturgical movement, I introduced you to Joseph Youngman, that's why I gave you that quote, and then the first week I introduced you to Virgil Michael. This is what they refer to as liturgical catechesis. And we have to understand what that means. It doesn't mean that when we go, and you know, just as a little parenthesis here, and you know this, but I just want to be clear. When we talk about liturgy, we're talking about all of the rites of the church plus the liturgy of the hour, but for certain examples, we're using the mass, the Eucharist, okay? All right, so um, this idea of liturgical catechesis does not mean that mass is a classroom. We have to be very cautious about that because during the 80s, 70s, 80s, we had these, what people used to refer to as teaching masses, where the priest would say mass and stop and explain everything. That is the wrong way to catechize about the liturgy. Okay? That's one thing. However, when we talk about liturgical catechesis, and if you go to the catechetical directories of our church, you are, will, and you go to the catechism of the Catholic Church, you're going to see that they all say that liturgy is the center of all catechesis. We don't know that yet. We know it if we've studied it, but people at large do not. All right, so the point here is and Robert brings up a really important point about the lack of catechesis for so many years revolving around this. We did a bad job and we're trying to keep renewing and doing a better job. But this idea of liturgical catechesis means that there's catechesis toward the liturgy, okay? Catechesis through the liturgy and catechesis from the liturgy. So that would mean that ideally we should be teaching everybody of every
children, for adults, youth, young adults, for everybody in some kind of a form to teach them about the mass. You know, taking it apart. What do they, What does the gathering hymn mean? What does a gathering mean? What does the hymn mean? What do the introductory rites mean? What does the liturgy of the word mean, etc. All right? So catechesis toward the liturgy. Catechesis through the liturgy means that the prayers themselves, with no explanation, they teach us. Remember I used my research on the Paschal Triduum as an example that the Triduum, as it is, as it is prayed and celebrated, teaches us something, right? And this is, Jackie knows this because of her work on her thesis, that the rites themselves, just read the Eucharistic prayers or listen to them, pray with them. They teach us about who we are and who we are to become, all right? Make sense? And then catechesis from the liturgy means that this is what's called mystagogy. Now, anybody who's familiar with the RCIA, the Rite of Christian Initiation of Adult, knows that mystagogy is a stage in the RCIA. However, where does that come from? History. That mystagogical catechesis means that you break open you, you um, share your experience that you had at Mass. How often do we have that, that we come from Mass and then we can sit around and talk about it with people and share our experience of, of what happened in and through the celebration of the Eucharist? You see? So that's liturgical catechesis. I could teach 14 weeks on liturgical catechesis, but that's the short version. Now, to address the other part about the homily. The homily is meant to break open the word. The homily should always be uh, coming from the readings of the day. But it needs to give us a connection to our everyday life because Jesus is speaking to you and me through the word of God. And we need to be aware, what is Jesus saying to me today? My prayer before mass is, show me what you want to, show me what you want me to hear. That's a prayer I just make before any, whether it's confession or the mass, any sacrament. Let me hear what you want me to hear today. Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. Okay. Now, as a little aside, and I can put this up in files, and this is good for everybody, whether you're a teacher, a deacon, a priest, there's some, there's a document from the USCCB called the homiletic directory. Some of you might be familiar with it. Um, but what they did in the appendix of that, I mean, there's a whole thing about what preaching should be like and a concern for preaching and the lack of doctrine. See, breaking open the word doesn't negate that there's not going to be some point of doctrine in there. But that doctrine 
get across needs to be connected to the word that was proclaimed. So in the homiletic directory, there is an appendix and some brilliant soul put together for all three cycles of the church year, the readings and the correlation to the catechism of the Catholic Church to help those preparing homilies to make a connection without it being too didactic. You know, a homily shouldn't really be that. And it's, it's a real art, the art of preaching. Uh, it's, it's referred to in a lot of work. And this is something that you, those of you who will be preaching, will develop over time, all right? Now, I mention this not only for those who will be preaching homilies, because I wrote an article, the Liturgy Training Publications, Pastoral Liturgy, and how this homiletic directory, particularly the appendix, can help catechists and teachers, particularly with the right of Christian initiation of adults and what catechesis should look like um, in that process. So I just offer it to you, you can enter the files, you can see what I'm talking about. But um, I think that that addresses the connection uh, that Youngman is getting at. That in the early church, as I said last week, liturgy and catechesis were intimately connected. And then eventually what happened was liturgy became the domain of clergy and catechesis became the domain of laymen and women. All right? And that's where we have the birth of the confraternity of Christian doctrine. Okay? Um, that's a whole nother course as well. But yeah, we do it in that class. But liturgical, the catechism and all of the directories reunite liturgy and catechesis. And the best example we have of that in our church today is the right of Christian initiation of adults. Because as you will learn further on, and some of you have already heard this from me, the right of Christian initiation of adults is not a program, as most people think. It's not a catechetical program. It is a right in order of the church that engages catechesis. That's important. So it is the first place where that made a reality of rediscovering the um, connection between liturgy and catechesis. That's a lot. And as I said, a whole course could be taught on this, but I think I addressed the question, I hope. All right? You good? There on Zoom? Uh, Dr. Esso, can I just give a quick plug? There is a, yes, a, a very well-produced television series. We were we didn't produce it, but we were involved in it, called Sunday to Sunday. Um, and it's available, you can search it online for anybody who is gonna be preaching. And what it is, um, is they go around the country and they, and they interview uh, a number of, of different priests from all around the country about their homilies, how they prepare for their homilies, how they structure their homilies. And it, it talks about what the things that you were just talking about in almost every episode. Three of them were done in the New York area, one in Brooklyn, one in the Arch, 
and one I one was in uh, the Arch of Newark. Um, Sunday, Sunday. Um, I know it's available Sunday. through uh, America Media okay. um, and uh, a number of other places online. It's called Sunday to Sunday. It just won an Emmy Award, actually. It's a really well wow. produced film. That, that's um, terrific. Yep, the, yeah. host is, the host is a former, uh, former, uh, former New Jersey priest who's now based in um, Monterey, California. Thank you for that, Bill. Appreciate it. So Sunday to Sunday, America Media. It's yeah. worth checking it out, right? So yeah. does that little synopsis of liturgical catechesis make any sense? I hope. But catechesis is lacking. It's lacking. It's lacking. But we ha we can't negate the catechesis that takes place in and through the liturgy without explanation particularly when it's prayed well. Okay, I'm gonna stop there or else I'll go on forever on that topic. Someday I'm gonna design an elective liturgical catechesis. I keep saying that, but haven't had the opportunity. All right, two more questions, they're short. Is there a difference between the terms sacred liturgy and liturgy? Because I, I, And I know I've used both. I mean, I know that's why the question came up. And then uh, the second part is sacred liturgy synonymous with the Holy Mass, divine worship. Basically, if I say sacred liturgy or liturgy, I mean the same thing. All liturgy is sacred. That's the, the answer I get. All liturgy is sacred. Yeah, right? No matter what it is. Okay? And then finally, uh, Metzger on page 34 refers to liturgical institutions. I went back and I read it. Uh, clarify what liturgical institutions is referring to. This is good. When we're reading this information that is uh, new to us, you know, sometimes that reading deeply means that, you know, sometimes you're not quite sure of what a word means. Um, I know reading context and text, you better have your dictionary.com handy with you. I do the same thing, but that's how you learn vocabulary, uh, church vocabulary, by writing. I'm a firm believer, when you're reading for a course, you have pad and paper right next to you. Even if you're highlighting and all that, because sometimes that can get lost, but you want to. And this question, to me, alludes to that, but somebody, where the, the questioner was looking at it and saying, hmm, I wonder what that means. So I went back and I read it, and there is this reference to liturgical institutions. So I broke it apart. Well, what is an institution? Basically, it's an organization, an establishment, a foundation, right? In general, in, an institution, right? A society that is devoted to a particular so a liturgical institution, this is my own interpretation, not, I didn't go anywhere else. A liturgical institution is a an establishment, a society that's devoted to worship. And that's us, the baptized. We gather as an institution, those of you who've had ecclesiology, is a model of church. You know, we need an institution. So the liturgical institution is the assembly, 
time and celebrate, make present Paschal mystery. Make sense? But that's reading deeply. When you pick out a phrase or a word and you're like, what does this mean? That, that's a good sign. Because we could read, um, you could probably sit up at night and read this Metzger book in a night. But then you're not reading it deeply. You're skimming it. But reading it deeply means that maybe after an hour you read two pages because you're looking at it and wondering and asking the questions. You're good? All right. So should we move, go back to the early church and see what it has in store for us? Uh, what, to re, who, remind me, when do we take a break? About 8.15-ish? Is that right? Whenever you say so. You rely on me, I'll never give you a break. But is that the normal? Yeah. About it. All right, we'll, we'll aim for that. So let me let me try to move on a little bit here. Um, and then uh, we'll get through the slides that you had for um, session two. And then next week, we're going to begin to catch up. But no worries. But next week, I will label it session four, just to keep on track. Um, so don't be thrown by that as well. And maybe I'll even relabel, for the sake of organization, this revised, I'll put a three, just so you're, you're aware. So we left off last week. Um, we were talking about the um, first century um, and we basically, the last slide we looked at, and now you have page numbers, was 20, was the last one I believe we discussed. Which one? Uh, 20, 20, two, two zero. Uh, we were talking about the spaces became the central gathering places for the community during the first century. And that was an important point related to the importance of community. And that was the model of the apostolic church, this gathering of the community, right? So we talked about that. And then we ended up saying that it was the assembly, not the building, that was the true temple, the church, right? And remember I said that the Greek word ecclesia translated as church did not refer to the building, but to the believers. So that's a really important point that we want to keep in mind, particularly as we uh, strive to discover the spirit of the liturgy. Um, and also, um, I think I noted last week, and if not, I'm going to uh, note it now, that Lumen Gymnasium, the constitution on the church, pretty much echoes this. The church as the body of Christ, the church as the people of God. Uh, back when I first started to teach adults in, in diocesan programs, the majority of people were surprised to hear this. You know, what what is the church's identity? What is um, uh, the vision of the church as noted by the Second Vatican Council, that the church is the people, all right? And that comes from the scholarship of looking back to these early resources 
that discovered how important the community was because we had lost that and as we'll see as we jump as we run through the centuries <laughs> okay all right so we're picking up from that and i'm going to move to uh, now you have little tiny numbers on the bottom of your uh, revised edition uh slide 21 and it's a title says the um rights of the apostolic church all right so we're still in the apostolic church but we're going to get out of it in a moment all right and um this is all pretty much following what you're going to what you're reading in metzger and for now as far as just uh, to be clear as far as you're reading you should um i would say focus on metzger for now don't worry about erwin um i've been really reading erwin and when we finish with the um early, early centuries okay uh, probably not next week the week after what i decided to do with context and text is to because uh, it is an overwhelming book i think uh for you um it, it's got good information but i'm going to actually point out now read Irwin's chapter so-and-so. Like, for example, his chapter, if you've looked at the book on tradition, is like in one chapter, he's going through the entire history, very short. And you have to, in my opinion, you have to have had this as a foundation before you can understand what he's talking about, or else you're going to be Googling every other paragraph, what it means. So don't, what I'm, I just want to say, don't worry about Irwin um, now. Okay, so um, continuing on this, the rest of the Esau church, we're going to start to see some development here. All right, um, and as you see on your um, on your sheet, um, the breaking of the bread is what it was referred to, uh, or the Lord's Supper. Remember, these early Christians were Jewish, and they were modeling all of their prayer after the synagogue service. But they referred, they added on this aspect of modeling what Jesus did with them, um, and they referred to it as the breaking of the bread. Okay? Um, there's also reference here to baptism. Okay? Uh, remember that uh, from Judaism, Judaism had rituals. And so these early Christians borrowed from the rituals. So baptism becomes one of the first sacraments, so to speak. We know that now, baptisms, uh, but that was the way to enter the community through baptism. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. I just want to lay it out here for you. All right. And the laying on of hands, also an ancient Jewish gesture, right, was for the healing of the sick, certainly, right? Didn't Jesus lay hands on people, touch their eyes, touch their ears? We read that a couple of weeks ago in the gospel. A man could speak, but that laying on of hands and it also um 
sign of sending out into mission. All right? The early, these early Christians had a deep sense of mission, had a deep sense of their, that their belief in Jesus, the, resur- uh, the risen Christ was part of every single thing they did. It wasn't a separate component of life. Everything they did was reflective of their belief in the risen Christ. And that sending out into mission, uh, certainly, that they wanted to bring this message to everyone. All right? So Metzger, again, is, is talking about that in that section, the rights of the apostolic church. All right, very, uh, very important. Again, don't get lost in the details. I want you to have a sense, because when we get to the contemporary celebration of liturgy, you're going to see where it came from. All right, the next, second and third centuries. This is reflective of chapter three in Metzger. All right, Um, Metzger points out that this period is distinct, and I know I mentioned it last week as well, from the apostolic era, because the apostles now are no longer there. So that's what makes the distinction. Earlier, the earlier period we talked about, the apostles were there. The, the people that walked with Jesus for three years, they were there, all right? But now they're not, they're no longer alive, and so they're replaced by new leadership. And it's important to realize that this now is a time when the Christian community was not officially recognized. And I think, Barbara, you brought up that point uh, last, uh, last week as well, that they were almost like, you know, right? Yeah, that they, they were actually asked to leave. Yeah, uh, yeah. Originally, they didn't, they didn't right. see themselves as separate. Correct. Originally, they were just a sect within Judaism, but then the Jewish people said, no, you're doing something different. And also, it was a time of persecution. All right? There was no tolerance. Um, and we'll see, hopefully next week, <laughs> um, that by the fourth century, um, we'll see that this recognition finally happens and it becomes the religion of the empire with the conversion of Constantine. We're, we'll look at that when we get to the fourth century. But this whole thing about it was a time of persecution. You know, um, let that sit with you for a moment. Sometimes we might feel like today is a time of persecution in a sense. And I say that because in this period of time, there was a risk in being Christian. Is there not a risk in being Christian today in our secular world? Amen. Amen. There's a risk, right? I remember, and this was somebody quoting somebody, and I don't remember either of them, but they said, and I'm paraphrasing, when we enter into uh, the church building to celebrate liturgy, to participate in the celebration of the liturgy, 
if we really understood what we were doing, we'd all be wearing hard hats. That's how much of a risk it is. That's a powerful statement. But that was somebody quoting somebody else, and someday I have to look for the exact quote. You know, because what we're doing there, participating in the death and resurrection, and um, our experience and what we take from that is our own death and resurrection. And I don't only mean physical death, it can mean that, but we die and rise daily. And to just recognize that, to be aware of that, we're taking a risk, that we're willing to even contemplate that. We're, you know, um, where have I died today? In other words, where have I sacrificed today? in my life, right? This is a good examine, good prayer. Where have I sacrificed? Where have I not accepted the suffering in my life? That invitation to participate in suffering of Jesus Christ. Because in our secular world, we tend to avoid suffering at all course. But sometimes, and most of the time, from my own experience, suffering is it invitation from the Lord to be with him in his suffering that's a that's a gift and the Saints pray for that <laughs> you know they want that so when we are experience a time of suffering in our own lives we need to I think ask the question how can I make this a perfect sacrifice how can I do that um, asking for the graces to be aware of what God is trying to show me in and through this suffering. And as Roman Catholics, we get to put that in ritual action in and through the sacraments, particularly the Eucharist, all right? So all we have to do for this to become a reality, tomorrow's the Feast of Padre Pio. Look, look at his life, a life of suffering that he honored and thanked God for. You need to do the same. Not easy. But we need to say, okay, okay, about that. And you can read the lives of any of the saints or early martyrs. And they were willing to put their life on the line and take a risk. And we, we need to ask ourselves the question, do I do that? Uh, can I do that? Do I want to do that? Am I invited to do that? You know, so it's, it's I think it's it leads you see how Just looking back at this history for me. It makes me stop and think if I was living in the first second third century Would I have been the one? To put my life on the line and say yeah, I want to be part of this community. I Hope I would have said yes <laughs> But I can look at my life today as a baptized person and say, I have the graces from that day so many years ago that I was baptized and I'm living it out. And how do I live it out to the fullest? By saying yes every single day to no matter what it is that the Lord, particularly through the proclamation of the word every day, what I'm being invited into. You see what I'm doing, making the connection to what we heard or read about, about early centuries, and how do we bring that up to, to appropriate it for our own lives?
right? So, so there is some risk involved in all of this, right? We could be, we might be criticized by family, neighbors, you know, that we're, you know, part of all this. Dr. Eschenauer. Uh, yes. I just had a discussion with um, two Eucharistic ministers who were telling me they were not, the um, particular parish had decided to stop bringing communion to a nursing home because they uh, would have had to do COVID testing every time they came in. Right. And I actually had that discussion with, you know, the example of St. Ignatius of Antioch, who asked to suffer as Christ suffered. And, you know, I, I said, I don't really know what the answer is to this question of not bringing the Eucharist because you would have to endure the test every week, but maybe reflect on it in terms of what are you suffering for? Yeah, that's a perfect present day um, reflection on this. You know, am I willing to do this for the good of somebody else in a nursing home. That, that's a wonderful example. Thank you for that. You know, and you know, with even with COVID now, we are experiencing people who won't go to church. They're still afraid and all of that. And we, in some ways, you know, uh, people that I know, even family members, I have to respect it. But I, I'm one of those people that said, I'm not gonna get COVID by receiving the Eucharist. <laughs> just not <laughs> you know I'm just, so maybe I am I know I have one son who thinks I'm taking a real risk there's been no proof of cases though I know we're doing okay yeah. you know Paul no uh, you agreed we, we are also suffering in, in, in an essence being persecuted in many different ways maybe here not as much as they are today right at this moment in certain places in the Middle East China, ah, terrible great. persecutions yes. that happen right now to the degree that it happened to the early church. But I've always taken great comfort and inspiration from the blood of the early martyrs, starting from the apostles and the early church. It inspires my faith, actually, because it would have been so easy for them to say, I don't believe, I'm just going to disappear into the woodwork, never be heard from. But they didn't. And, and that's because it was true. And they knew it was true. They were very close to it. And, and that inspires me. That's, that's a terrific reflection. That is great. And we need to be, that's why we read the lives of the saints, to be inspired. Because we're all called to be saints. That's the bottom line. You know, some respond, some don't. But basically, as the baptized, we're all called to this. Um, and, you know, our response perhaps develops over time, um, and sometimes we get to a, a point in life. Uh, I remember, always think, I remember way back in the 1980s, I was a theology student, I remember reading Thomas Merton, The Seven-Story seven Mountain. Some of you might be familiar with it, his autobiography, beautiful. I don't remember a lot about that book, but I do remember this one line. To be a saint, means to be yourself. And I remember reading it thinking, that's what I want. That's what I want. And I am openly going to tell you 
that shortly afterwards, everything started to go wrong in life. Everything. Everything started to go wrong. That's when my mother died, whose anniversary we celebrate tomorrow. All right, and then there were some other things. But I was aware enough to say, all right, what am I being called to in this suffering? You see? So we're all called to be saints, and when we respond, watch out and see what happens. But it's all grace. It's, it's all grace. Because when that happens, we have, um, we have a choice. We have a choice to stay on the human level, which would tell us run away from it, right? Or we have a choice to look for the graces. Look for the graces, you know? I taught that recently to my daughter-in-law, who is so fascinated by this. And every time things get hectic, two little kids, she says, I know, look for the graces, which is so great that she picked up on that. But the human in us might say, let's run the other way. I don't, I don't need this. But you see, we're lifted up to be able to say, okay, let me find the graces. How is God speaking to me in and through this? Okay? So what I'm so, and I, this is not, I have to admit to you, planned, but it's coming out in my delivering you this information about the early centuries that I just feel, and this must be the spirit working in my own life, that I'm making a connection to contemporary Christian life for us. You know, that this is not just an obscure time that we're just studying you know, little details from documents and books and all of that. But we can make real connections here. I mean, that's a discovery that is a surprise to me in teaching this uh, information. I hope it's helpful. I don't know. <laughs> um, let me just do a couple of more before I give you a break, okay? Um, so, uh, let's see. Um, it would be page 23 on your slides. Um, it's just... Uh, point of information to look at this brief development christian communities now are starting to grow up in other places outside of palestine all right which was the birthplace so we have christian communities uh springing up in the cities around the mediterranean sea and this was an area that was under the power of the roman empire all right and it's important to realize now that the language in these cities is Greek, the language that they're speaking. They're outside of, uh, we're, we're, we've moved from Palestine and we're into the cities where Greek is the language uh, spoken. And by this time, according to my sources, um, scripture uh, had already been translated into Greek uh, for the people who only understood that language. So the Christian community became independent, but were still guided by the tradition of the apostles. You see that tradition to this day, we haven't let go of. So the, as we move away from this time where the apostles are actually alive, the people are carrying this apostolic tradition with them. So they're guided by it. They're not making up their own rules now. They're still guided by the apostles. And the important thing to recognize here is that writing things down now becomes important because
prior, in the first century, it was all oral tradition, you know, and now they're realizing we need to write things down, okay? Um, now, another a good point here is that, um, as we brought up before, the Jewish people were rejecting these early Christians, okay? So now the Christians are moving outside of the Jewish world and into a world of uh, pagans. So the people who are coming into the Christian community are no longer Jewish. They're, they, they're pagans. So their, their approach now is going to be different because the Jewish people had a religious background. And now the people that they're encountering do not. So their whole approach to recruiting and uh, sharing, um, uh, sharing the mission of, uh, and life of Jesus Christ, it's a whole different approach. You see? It's like learning a whole new language now. There's no longer, in general, this connection to Jewish life and Jewish ritual and Jewish belief. I think that's a really important point. So they had to provide at this time much more teaching. And this is what led to the creation of what was called, in this early phase, catechetical schools. See, catechesis, catechetical, is an ancient word that the Roman Catholic Church only started to use again after the Second Vatican Council. If you go back to documents from then. We didn't use the word catechesis when I was in grammar school. It just, well, it was a word that was rediscovered, right? Um, so these catechetical schools originate back to this time. And as I said, writing things down becomes very important. All right, you good? You need a stretch break, I think. So why don't we come back no later than 8.30. And then hopefully in an hour we can wrap this up. So we can move into the exciting fourth century next week. All right? Whew. Good stuff, huh?
none of them were able to put a just that simple put it together. write this. 
you know, was he the author? Um, but based, the conclusion is that it probably is a work compiled from several sources. Even though when you go to other uh, books on the history of liturgy or the, the catechumenate or catechesis, you will find this apostolic tradition, this source, attributed to Hippolytus. But you see, this is, I don't want to disturb the whole, as when I teach from home in Zoom, my, my kids say, why is mom yelling? <laughs> Turner in his book, The History of the 
catechumenate brings all this up, everything we've talked about so far, because we, we see, as I think I noted on your, um, for next time, um, the, on your syllabus, the origins of the catechumenate we're, we're finding here. All right, and we'll eventually look at the restoration of the catechumenate as we move on. But anyway, Hippolytus was a writer, he was a martyr, he was a saint. And this work, the Apostolic Tradition, which is an ancient manuscript, which was discovered in about, I think around 1848, is essentially attributed to him, but as I said, scholars dispute that and think it's a collection of writings, but some of them might have been directly from him, but it is attributed uh, to him. Um, so, um, I just wanted to mention that. And all of that is, some of that is on your slide. Um, the other thing that we find in this source, all right, these are all ancient sources where we piece together this puzzle of, of the history of liturgy of the church. Um, we also find in here that it was concerned with um, rituals, like the Eucharist is mentioned, baptism is mentioned, because baptism was a very important ritual, um, uh, ritual action in this early uh, phase of the church. Uh, there's also uh, sections on prayer, and listen to this, this section on the assembly. The assembly is vitally important, okay? And if we were to look at, and Paul Turner has um, even um, diagrams in the book of what worship spaces look like. And it's interesting if we were to do a study of the architecture of early worship spaces as compared to what we saw prior to the Second Vatican Council, um, or in some cases even today, in the early church there was no separation or little separation from what we would call the sanctuary and the nave where the assembly gathered. That's right, they were mostly movable or people stood. But the point is, is that the community assembled was so important, vitally important. And we see that rediscovered with Vatican II. And we'll see it in Sacrosanct and Concilium, particularly paragraph number seven. Um, anyway, so we, and all of that, as we'll see when we get to it comes from what was discovered in these early sources. Here we see um, uh, in this collection of writings, um, of really, remember I said before that things had to be written down. Well, this is it. This is when they started to write down. And what we see here regarding ministries we see an introduction to what was called the bishop. And the bishop was based, remember I said before, uh, earlier, that the apostles are no longer here. So there's a distinction with now this period. And new leadership has to arise. So this is where we now have what was called the bishop, but it's not a bishop 
as we know it today. It was the overseer, all right, the leadership that was just overseeing this organization that was now developing. We also see introduced here what was called the presbyter, and we would equate that to priest now, but it wasn't the same then. It was more of a helper to the overseer, all right, because um, as the communities grew, one person couldn't oversee all these little communities that were springing up. And here we see the deacon, the deacon who is serving um, the community here. Um, we see in this source elements of ordinations is now beginning, all right? Um, because you have to remember, early on, there wasn't a priesthood as we know it. You know, it was, it was very different. It was very, but here we start to see um, beginnings of elements of rites of ordinations. In other words, if a person was appointed the overseer, they ritualized it. This is really important, even in our modern times. All right, a recent document of Pope Francis elevating the ministry of catechist is going to have a ritual that a catechist there will be a ritual to install that person as a catechist now the importance here what i'm referring to in the early church and even today again making these connections is that ritualizing something makes it real it makes it real. It's not just me saying, you know, like we tend, oh, you can be a catechist. Anybody can be a catechist. No, this is saying some people are called to be catechists. And after a period of discernment, if a person feels called to this ministry, there's gonna be formation and then there'll be recognition through a ritual that the entire a parish community would know that this person has been called and designated as catechist. That's the vision of this new document that I hope and pray that we see come to fruition. But this is what, what we see here, that somebody just didn't say, I'm the overseer or you're the overseer, that they ritualized it to make known to the community. This is the person who is gonna care for us who's going to make sure that we are in line with this beautiful apostolic tradition. Okay, makes sense. So we begin to see, the key here is we begin to see the rise of these ministries and these elements of rituals to recognize, all right, as we would say in, in ordination, okay? And another session here, deals with what I referred to before, the catechumenate. In other words, um, people who wanted to become Christian, all right, uh, be part of this Christian community, that there was a period of preparation, lengthy period of preparation, three years or more and sometimes a lifetime, no set time. But uh, here we see beginnings of that. 
which eventually led to the celebration of baptism and Eucharist for what we would call neophytes. And neophytes, we use that word in the RCIA now, but that's an ancient word meaning newly baptized. Anybody see something missing there? Regarding initiation into the church? What is this? Well, close. What, am, what, am, what do you think I'm thinking about? And what is initiation today in the church? Baptism? Confirmation. Somebody on Zoom said it. Confirmation. Yeah. Confirmation and Eucharist. Three sacraments of initiation in that order. But here in the ancient church, there's no mention of confirmation. Can anybody guess why? Because they were adults at the age that they were they were brought into the church. Uh, not quite. All, all at once. Okay. <laughs> oh yeah, sort of, sort of, Robert. Yeah. What we now know is confirmation. You you were real close there, Marie. I think you got it at the end. What we know is confirmation today did not exist in the early church because the anointing after baptism was part of baptism and it wasn't called confirmation till way later the word confirmation wasn't used and you're going to see when we get to the contemporary church that the theology of confirmation today must reflect that that it has everything to do with baptism it's a whole missing piece but robert in the spring you'll get a whole course on that with your your brothers but anyway i just want to make that point that there was this period of preparation for people who wanted to become Christian. And I think an important thing to point out is they didn't go to a class. They didn't go to a class. It wasn't like that. If they wanted to be Christian, they learned how to be Christian by living with the Christians. That the Christians were the witnesses and they lived with, they didn't have a book where they studied, they, they lived with the Christians and learned a way of life. That's important, catechetically and in every way, that you you learn through witness. Not that in our time books are important and all that, but uh, this is a significant piece, and it goes back to how important the community was, community of believers. So I'm outside the community, I'm a pagan, and I see them. And I, I say, I think I want to be part of them. So I go and I live with them. And I learn from them. From, from the time they wake up till the time they go to bed, I'm learning what it means to be a Christian. And then the catechumen involved other things. Um, part of their prayer, catechumens were allowed to be in. But then there were parts that were kept secret and catechumens were not. But, and we'll talk more about this more extensively, but I just for now want you to have the idea, the understanding that this is where we have the origins of the catechumenate. And then we're gonna see how it died out and we'll see how it was um, restored um, with the Second Vatican Council. Really beautiful. That's the thread of all my research. I'm really passionate about it. That's all I can say. All right. So again, we're concentrating on looking at sources. Where do we get this ancient information from? So turning the page to what's uh, uh, 
your little number 25, we have this Didascalia Apostolorum. And this is the Catholic teaching of the 12 apostles. Um, and again, remember, it becomes important uh, for things to be written down. And it becomes important because there needs to be, this community is growing. And there's a lot of communities. So there needs to be regulations. And they need to be written down. Okay? So here... We see uh, the document offers pastoral exhortations addressed to bishops or the overseer. Like, what is his job? What does he need to do to make sure that these regulations of the Christian community are being abided by? We also see the organization of assemblies. Remember how important the assembly has always been from the beginning. Right? The gathering of people. Um, all right? The gathering of the believers. The welcoming of strangers uh, is also addressed here. You know, how do we welcome the stranger? Do we welcome the stranger? How do we do it? You know? Um, Paschal celebrations. This would uh, basically Paschal meaning Easter. You know, they were celebrating. Uh, remember I said that Sunday was the original feast day. Sunday was like every Sunday was an Easter. All right, so that's what they're talking about, these Paschal celebrations. This celebration, this remembering, making present today the Paschal mystery, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So there's some writings about that. And then here's where we start to get in writing this idea of a calendar, right, of feasts, you know, what we're celebrating. So it's the beginnings, the origin of what we'll look at later on, the liturgical calendar. And the origin of what we know as the um, liturgical calendar definitely comes from Judaism because they had an established cycle of feasts and seasons so it's like the passover then becomes our easter and basically passover and eucharist are very much tied together with every eucharist we uh, participate in we're celebrating the passover but not the passover from slavery into freedom but the passover from from sin out of sin through jesus christ our salvation you see, but there's a very, very close connection. So we have the beginnings of this. And I'm just going to mention it. You can, uh, for a quote from this document, I won't take the time. But if you just make a note, uh, page 39 in Metzger is a big, long quote of what you would find um, in this document, the teaching of the 12 apostles. I thought it was kind of funny say on page 36 there's a quote from Ignatius of Antioch oh yeah he says those who fail to join in the worship show their arrogance yeah and that they should gather frequently to celebrate the God God's Eucharist and to praise and I just thought we're still trying to get the faithful to come to mass 
Right, we're all like, we're thinking like Ignatius of Antioch. We think it's a common problem. It's yeah, exactly, exactly. But I'd like to uh, comment, not judge. Uh, <laughs> uh, when, it's an observation. An observation. When you, when you say Christians, living with Christians, they become the, the catechumenates. That's what we're also lack, lacking. Uh, our, ourselves behaving like Christians so that strangers would want to live with us and become one of us. That's, a, that's very good. That we as the baptized, uh, we are witnesses or should be or called to be witnesses to our faith. And we're quick to judge. And we are, yes. And that anybody looking on at how we live, how we <coughs> act. I used to say to catechists, when I used to train catechists, I used to say to them, you are not a catechist for one hour a week. You are a catechist 24 hours a day. And be assured that everybody from the soccer field to your child's school, to your neighborhood gatherings, et cetera, et cetera, should know that. And you need to be a witness. That's important. You know, it's taking it seriously, who we are. You know, I had a situation with a, a, a somewhat of a friend, acquaintance, somebody I know, that um, it, it involved something that was totally against who I am. And I tried, do I want to hurt their feelings and not be part of it? What do I do? And I made the decision not to be part of it. And I know that I was probably criticized for it. However, I said to my husband, and he, he backed me up 100%, but I said, first of all, I, I'm a baptized Roman Catholic, number one. Number two, um, seminary faculty. I've taken an oath of fidelity. And that goes beyond the classroom, in my mind. I take that very seriously. And anything that is contrary to that, with all due respect and not judging, I, I won't be part of publicly at all. I just couldn't do it. And I know that I have one enemy over this, but whatever. They'll, co they'll come around if they know anything about who I am. And that's, I had to make that dis discernment, you know? Um, and I, I feel comfortable with it. I prayed with it for months. So, you know, it's, it's that kind of thing. But yeah, we need to be witnesses. And sometimes it involves taking a risk and we need to stand up for, without being judgmental, we need to stand up for who we are and what we believe. And by that, we, we will show people what it means to be Roman Catholic, I think. But you're absolutely right. That's a really important thing. And it was very important in the early church. And we need to keep that in mind. And the community aspect, when we look at the contemporary catechumenate, if you were to look at the rite itself, it's the only rite of the church document that we have that lists the community as the primary minister. It's the only, the community is the one who is 
catechumens, present catechumens. Um, that is a very hard sell. In my 30 plus years of teaching this around the country, it's a hard sell, but it's important. And the church thinks so much of the community of believers that it's, it's front and center in the section of the right book under ministries and offices. Doesn't list the bishop first, the priest, the deacon, the catechist, the community. That it's the community that initiates. That's big, I think. All right, we're good? We got a half an hour to get through this. Let's see what we can do. The next section uh, is looking at assemblies. Here we go again. You see how it's like re almost repeating from century to century of what's important here? And we're hearing loud and clear community assemblies. All right, so um, Metzger, starting on page 35, has this section. Um, Christian communities, sorry, Christian communities existed in their assemblies. All right, this is on your slide 26. Meetings were in secret. Because remember, this is not recognized, approved, they're taking risks, so they meet in secret. All right? Um, and there is some control over who they let in. And I don't really know the answer to it, but it'd be interesting to delve more deeply into it to see how they admitted catechumens in those days. Um, I would venture to think that what we do currently is through sponsors, people that can testify on their behalf that there was some sort of that, that somebody, they would bring them, testify on their behalf. Because again, it was risky. Who are we letting in? Because things were done in secret at this time because of fear of what could happen to them, right? So that's, you know, uh, something to think about. Um, and here, actually, I have the quote that uh, Barbara mentioned on page 36 from Ignatius of Antioch. Because regarding the assemblies, the Christians were encouraged to attend, not sit home, but to gather for prayer. And that quote that Barbara brought to our attention is those who fail to join worship show their In other words, I don't need you. You know? But it was very clear in the early Christian communities that people knew they needed each other because of the time they were living in and the risks they were taking. So they needed each other for support in their faith in Jesus Christ. The same is true today. That's why I go to Mass for you, and you go to Mass for me. We're supporting each other. And we don't know it, and we have to make a, a concerted effort to help people to understand the importance of gathering as the community of the baptized today in 2021. That's why we can't stay home and watch it on TV if we're able to go. And if we're not sick, a lot of the letters I've been reading in bulletins are very clear on that. Because some people, and again, it's an observation, not a judgment, will crawl to Mass, not to miss it, and they have the flu. That's not the right thing. That's silly, you know? Um, 
um, so the the priests, a lot of priests, I, I go to three different churches and I've seen the bulletins are in this now post-pandemic time, they are saying, yes, it's safe to come here, you know, et cetera, et cetera, you've seen it. it um, but they say, if you are sick, stay home. That's an important thing we've learned from COVID. We've even been told that as people here, if you're sick, stay home. If you're still home in class. We're going to avoid the spread of not only COVID, but last year we had no flu and all that stuff. But anyway, all right? So um, the point here uh, is that assembling was very important. And the same holds true. So the connection, again, uh, making these connections to, for us, uh, this gathering to pray, to worship, to celebrate, uh, participate in the celebration of whatever it is. And I want to be specific and not only, I don't want you to think liturgy is just the Eucharist, but it's, we use it as the example, it's liturgy par excellence, but we also have the other sacraments as well. But we, the baptized, it's important. And I mentioned this, I think, last time. We don't live in isolation. As the baptized, we cease to live in isolation. We are, yes, we are um, baptized into Christ, but we are baptized into a community of believers. That's, that's a point that we miss. And the Second Vatican Council makes that clear, that being um, converted to Christ is one thing, but also being converted to a community that I am part of you. We are part of the body of Christ, the people of God. That's important. And where do we get that from? These are early resources. These are early resources. Okay, so that's important. But that's something that got lost along the way. But it's right here in these beautiful uh, ancient documents. You good? Okay, I know it gets late about this time, but we're good. I don't know about you, but I go home and I can't sleep. <laughs> I get so riled up. <laughs> it's exciting. I love it. Energizes. I was telling somebody earlier, uh, I frequent a chiropractor and for years, and he knows me and he knows what I do. He says, I don't know how you teach till 9.30 at night. <laughs> but I'm going to pray. So it's a privilege. Anyway, uh, page 27 places the assembly. All right, so the assembly is so important. These, where is the assembly that's so important? Um, uh, going to gather. So there's some archaeological data. It's rare at this time, but it's there. We can see it. And one of the primary things that Metzger brings up is these remnants of house churches that we talked about last time, that people gathered in somebody, a member of the community who had a large house and could accommodate these. Um, so there's remnants of these house churches. And um, they're, they're, uh, Paul Turner has uh, diagrams of them in his book, but basically these remnants have been found um, in Syria, for example. Now, the house church, just to uh, reiterate, I think I mentioned it last week, contained several rooms, 
okay? And one room on the ground level of the house church was large enough to, to accommodate the community that was coming to pray. And it could even accommodate baptisms, all right, that took place in this larger space in the house church, all right? So there was a, uh, this is the early development of a place for worship, place for worship, all right? And we'll see more of that when we come into uh, contemporary times and we look at our current churches, art and architecture, etc. There are documents on this. So now we want to move forward to look at specifically the Eucharistic celebration. Remember earlier on, they were referring to the breaking of the bread, the Lord's Supper, right? And here we have a figure is just in water. Okay, uh, Metzger uh, points it points it out. Now again, just a little bit of a uh, bio on him. Uh, he's from Samaria. He was from Samaria, and he studied the philosophies of his time. All right. And we're still talking about early, you know, second century here, okay? Um, but then he learned the Christian philosophy, okay? And he became attracted to it. And he was baptized eventually in Ephesus, and he established the catechetical school in Rome in the second century. He wrote a defense. He was an apologist. So it's a, you'll see in your reading probably this reference to his first apology, which is a defense of Christianity. And he answers a lot of questions for people, and he gives basically, his intent was to give clarity to things. Again, writing things down becomes very important during this time. And he also has a section on liturgy, all right? And he specifically describes baptism and Eucharist, okay, uh, here. So here what we find, and you can see this on your, uh, the screen, um, and what's very important to realize that in this apology from Justin Martyr, we get the oldest pattern for the Eucharistic liturgy here. Uh, he describes it as readings, sermon, prayers, exchange of a kiss, presentation of gifts, communion. Sound familiar? I think that's amazing. The oldest pattern of what we have, we can find here. Um, also, um, Metzger mentions that communion was sent to those who were absent, probably meaning they were sick and couldn't get there. Now again, fast forward to contemporary time. That's our practice today. We bring union to the sick, and some parish even ritualize it and send forth the extraordinary minister of Holy Communion sent forth before the closing, um, the concluding rites. There's, that's a beautiful thing. Um, but we don't see it everywhere. You do it. You do it. Oh, I just wanted to say, um, 
use the word that I want to use. I find him amazing that in his search for the truth, didn't he bounce around from philosopher to philosopher? And then the description he gives, especially of the Eucharist, like how did he end up there? I mean, it was just amazing. And didn't he, did he, didn't he really emphasize that, I don't know if he was the first one that really gave emphasis to what we were talking about earlier, the, um, the bread and the, and the wine actually turning into the body and blood of Christ. I mean, he gives a description as if he were really at the Last Supper. And I just find it really amazing that, you know, he's jumping around from Plato to, you know, searching for the truth. Yeah, and then he ends he up just, here and he gives a description as if he was really, like if he knew, you know, he knew Christ or yeah. he was with him. he discovers Christian philosophy and is deeply attracted to it. And then it probably has these other earlier sources where he's reading about this, like the apostolic tradition, uh, the teaching of the 12 apostles, and learning from those how ritual meant to make real now. So you see how that's its grace that he developed that and he did it and now we have it to see how this is developed. It is an amazing thing. Right, Doug. I'm gonna comment on Steve's comment. I think his comment that it's as if he was at the Last Supper. I think what we need to try to remember is the passion of these early witnesses. I mean, picture people that you know coming up and telling you that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and you know these people, and you know that they're not imagining these things. So coming to grips with that, this passion was just continuing on and on from one witness to the next. And that's probably why these people like Justin Martin, they feel they're there. Exactly, because they were close to it. Even though now the apostles are gone, they were still very close to it. Very, very close to what they've been hearing and reading eventually. They're so close to it, you know? Um, and that kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of class. I mean, when we go to Mass, we celebrate the Eucharist. That is, and we actually are there. We actually are celebrating the Last Supper. So somebody in the way in the back, if you really believe that, yeah, you should you know, it's made like real for us. It, the, the documents, uh, Second Vatican Council uses the word actual. And I know that came up. Somebody read it. It makes actual, makes present. real, present um, for us. Everybody needs to know that, that the passion, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is made real for us. If everybody knew that, our churches would have standing room only. Right. Okay. Right. Father O'Reilly used to talk about it all the time. When he was at, I'm not sure, it was a graduate or undergraduate work at Columbia. He had a Muslim classmate. And he came up to him one time and said, if I believe what you Christians believe, that that was really God in the tabernacle, I would never leave the building. That's, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I, I have to echo that. Yes. That we, we, you know, um, it should be packed like a, a concert <laughs> that we would never leave it abandoned, you know? And there, there, are, there are communities of nuns that have, de that have devoted themselves 
to doing exactly that, never leaving the tabernacle abandoned. To me, I'm so attracted to that. You have no idea. I tell my husband, I want to join that order. And you know, this is kind of funny. I hope nobody's taking me tonight. But he says, sure, go ahead, come home once a month and pay the bills. (laughs) You know, but I am very much attracted to that whole idea of, you know, just knowing this presence uh, being a witness to that presence. See, they're, they're such witnesses to me that it makes me want to flee there. And I have to, t- if I go, we have a small adoration chapel near where I live. I need to, when I go there, and I admit I can't get there often enough, but when I go there, it's like I have to tear myself away. I don't want to leave. And I've been on retreats where I have the privilege of being there for four days, and I don't have to leave until it's time for me to go to sleep. That is an amazing experience. But if you are on perpetual uh, adoration, who's going to teach your class? (laughs) Well, Zoom it. You can't Zoom from perpetual I know. See, I understand that the Lord has called to do this, and and he knows that. But um, I'm to believe that I can do my calling better if I carve out time for that, and then the Lord is going to grace me. I say this because, again, I hear that a lot, that if we truly believe that God is there, we wouldn't leave the room. But, again, we have to go out on a mission. And that's exactly right. We have to be sent from there. I think it's, I think it's but, so worthwhile to spend that time, though. You know, we're fortunate in our parish. We have weekly adoration. And I know that in the city they are mm-hmm. um, building Perpetual adoration chapel. Yes. Yeah, you mentioned that to me. Yeah. There's, uh, you know, there's an order of priests, the missionaries of the Most Holy Eucharist. They, uh, their main site is in France, but they're dedicated. Uh, their mission is to establish um, uh, adoration chapels around the world, and they have missions in the United States, in Africa, in Europe, and that's their their mission. It's a beautiful thing. It is. And, you know, it's all part of creating this awareness of, of what was going on here in the century we're talking about and appropriating it to our day, today, what we do in and through liturgy uh, and that we can appreciate and help others to appreciate the real presence. There's going to be a real concerted effort by the, this is an aside, the United States Uh, USCCB, the bishops of the United States, are making a concerted effort now to direct uh, their, also if you go on their website, I think they have a website dedicated to uh, teaching about the Eucharist and real presence um, because of the statistics and misunderstandings, etc. So that's going to be, we're going to see more things like Eucharistic Congresses and stuff like that in the coming time years and that's very exciting to me you know and i think you know who uh, the world again it's this constant renewal and awareness we have gone through as you will see times in history where um nobody received communion 
That's why Pius X in 1910 lowered the age for First Communion. And I'm jumping way ahead, but then we'll talk about it, because wanted little children to receive communion to try to teach and influence the adult community that frequent communion. Because it was a time that people were not receiving communion. Maybe going going to mass, but you know, and that's a whole other history lesson when we get to it. Uh, that has to do with why we needed a reform. <laughs> anyway, let me really try to go through it, and then I'll let you, if you have any uh, questions, I'll let you ask them. So I think the important thing to hear, to hear from this uh, page 28 is this whole idea of a pattern is being established, and we can certainly recognize it. And then um, Metzger goes on to say, I don't think I have it on this slide. Yeah, I have it on the next slide, 29. Um, he, that there's a structure for the Eucharistic prayer that we can see. Um, and it's uh, found here as well. We see an initial dialogue, an introductory formula of thanksgiving, and anamnesis. And anamnesis means recalling or remembering. Now this is important because remember what I said about for the Jewish people to remember meant to make it present now. So when they remembered the Exodus, it was making it real for them now. So we inherit that. So we have, and we have the anamnesis today, we recall. And so we see this developing, this remembering, this recall making it real, the work of salvation. There's a formula of offering introduced by a Paschal recalling, <coughs> followed by another formula of thanksgiving. And all you have to do is go to the Eucharistic prayers, you know, and it's easy. You don't even need the, if you have Magnificat, or give us this day, do all in there. You don't even need the Roman Missal. Um, then the epiclesis, the calling down. Some scholars I know pronounce it epiclesis, but I have always heard the word epiclesis. Um, but there's Ed Foley, who I introduced you to a couple of weeks ago. He says epiclesis, but I have always heard epiclesis from all of the scholars I learned from, so whatever. But that calling down of the Holy Spirit on the um, offerings as well, and then the Trinitarian doxology, as we, you know. So we see this developing very early on. So what basically what we're doing is nothing new. It's ever ancient, ever new. Okay, so turning to 30, uh, 30, 30, the liturgy of baptism. Okay. Writers from the second and third century speak about baptism. I mentioned this before. And foremost among the, the people that we can highlight here, I have it on your slide, Justin Water that we talked about and I brought it to your attention. Uh, in his first apology, he mentions baptism in addition to Eucharist. Um, then we have this uh, other uh, person, uh, Tertullian, 
who is a, also a patristic apologist from North Africa. Um, the, his dates are probably from around 150 to 220, but he is known for his homily on baptism, okay? And he may have been educated in Rome. A lot of it is speculation uh, that Paul Turner writes about. Uh, he was a married man and he was baptized as an adult. As most people in the early church were baptized as adults. However, in my study of the history of the catechumenate, there is evidence that households were baptized and that indicates that small children and infants were also baptized in the early church. But anyway, Tertullian is considered the first great theologian of the Latin language. Um, and that comes from him being educated in Rome where the language was Latin. And he uh, did extensive writing to defend a lot of heresies of his time. But again, he is very well known for his homily on baptism. All right, and you will find if you do research on the catechumenate, you're gonna find uh, his work everywhere. Um, so again, just um, important uh, tidbits uh, for you to be aware of. Um, on the next slide, 31, preparation for baptism, the catechumenate. Here's where we really see these origins developing of this uh, process and ritual for initiating people into the church. Um, and by the second and third century, there is a well-organized catechumenate. In other words, a well-organized uh, process to bring people into the church, okay? And, and it involved uh, catechesis and liturgy. Remember, two sides of the same coin, all right? Um, and here, and I have it up on the slide, when we read about this, we see language that if you were to, if you're familiar with the rite of Christian initiation of adults, or if you were to look at it, you would hear some of this language. Inquiry. The whole first uh, stage of the catechumenate process is inquiry. No commitment. Asking the questions, finding out what it's about. All right? That's even before any catechesis takes place. Somebody comes inquiring about being Christian. You hear words like godparents or sponsors, okay? Teaching, teaching of our faith. Community, here it is again, always. That's like a thread, right? Election, all right? Um, again, in the RCIA, we have something known as the rite of election. That is an ancient, ancient ritual. And it basically doesn't mean what we think election means, election by God. When ritually recognized that God chooses a person to be baptized. We see uh, language like exorcisms. And these exorcisms, and we see it in the present day uh, rite of Christian initiation of adults, they were 
minor uh, rituals of prayer to strengthen all that is good in a person and to help dispel all that is weak. It's not exorcism like we would think, you know, like the um, major exorcisms. It's a whole different thing. All right. Uh, more about that later when we talk more extensively. And then finally, we see um, this celebration of baptism and what it might have looked at. Uh, so let me just go through this very briefly and then uh, we'll go. So just give me maybe two more minutes. I know it's late and you're tired. But um, um, Justin Martyr says, and this is on your slide, baptisms took place on Sunday, the day of the communal assembly. And it's very interesting. Tertullian in his homily on baptism says that the Passover provides the most solemn day for uh, baptism. He's referring to Easter, but we also have to remember at this time, Easter meant Sunday, every Sunday. So they're right on. And if you look at the order of baptism for children today, it's going to say that Sunday is the best day to have baptism. So you see, again, we can make these connections. Um, I'm going to 32, and I'll just finish up here. But that, in this um, reference to baptism that we see, there is reference to the pouring of water. This is really important to hear this. And when we look at sacramental theology, we have a section on that that we'll look at. We're going to see how important action is. So, for example, what's alluded to here, that if we were to say, what is the um, symbol used in baptism? One might say water. But it's actually more accurately to say the pouring of water the action, the pouring of water, and that goes back here. Another example, maybe that'll make more sense, the wedding ring. It's not the ring, it's the exchange of rings. You see, the action. So we, we wanna even, or in our day, I think we need to be careful when we talk about that. But, it's, but here it is, uh, right nice and early in the church. Um, not much is known about actual setting of baptism. However, what is made clear in the early writings is that it was not celebrated in the presence of the assembly. It was celebrated in another place in these house churches, what we would might refer to today as a baptistry, a place for baptism. And because it's clear in these early writings that the newly baptized were brought into the assembly. Now, my research has taught me that the reason for this most likely was when a person was baptized, they were stripped of their clothing as a sign of taking off their own life. So they were naked. So it had to be done in private. All right. And then they were clothed in new clothes and then brought into the assembly. And believe it or 
because when they were brought into the assembly where the overseer, the bishop was, he anointed them. See, anointing after baptism by the bishop. That's, that's the early origin of the sacrament of confirmation. It wasn't called that then. It developed into that for many reasons that I won't go in now. All right, but I want to bring it to your attention. Um, so anyway, uh, we see here, and this this is what, uh, uh, keep in mind here, it's on your uh, bullet point here, that we see evidence of a threefold baptismal immersion. And we know that's the form, that I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. All right, so immerse three times. All right, then we see an anointing that I just mentioned. We see evidence of a laying on of hands, right? Falling down the Holy Spirit. The sign of the cross is an important thing and the kiss of peace. So here we see evidence of actions of what we experience also today. And we see definitely origins of the contemporary rite of Christian initiation of adults. So, that being said, amen. Before I close with the glory be, any question, clarification, feel free to email it. Yeah, I'll email it. It's okay. And then I will address it in the beginning of class. Because you can put thought into it, I can put thought into it. So please feel free to do that. If something strikes you, drop me an email. It's the easiest way. I'll get it. I'll save it. I'll bring it up the same way I did today. All right? Your troopers, we're five minutes over time. I apologize. But glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. As it was at the beginning, it's now that we shall be for without end. Amen. Amen. Thank you, everybody, for your Thank attention. Thank you. Good night. Good night, everyone. Good night, everybody. Have a good night. Prayers for your mom. Prayers for your mom. Thanks so much. That's very nice. Kind. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night.